Hello and welcome. Today I am, I say this a lot, but genuinely today I'm very excited because we've got someone who I've been trying to pin down for this, but he's, a lot of you will recognise him, I'm being joined by consultant physio James Moore. James, welcome. Thanks Andy, pleasure to be here. Now James, before we get into it, I would say that out of the, I've done nearly 130 of these now, and I reckon your names come up probably the most in all of those. And before you get too panicked, I'm sure you've not listened to all of them, but there's you, you've been brought up a lot by, by a lot of the speakers um, in a very positive light on, on a number of different levels. But have you got any any thoughts as to to why and that that might be the case? Um, I'm old and I've been doing this a long time. That's probably it. Like so, I think longevity within the career, um, and then I think I've tried to reinvent myself and challenge myself and take myself out of my comfort zones which has just led to different directions and different opportunities and so you know I think with that you hopefully can influence or come across or collaborate with a bunch of different people so yeah but I mean I'm like yeah it's I've never really tried to to do that it's probably just more of a you know it's, it's happened by by chance and by um fortune really yeah, all, all the people. A lot of people say it's luck in terms of that. I'd, yeah. I'd question. I'd, I'd question it. I'd question it. Um, so in terms of that, then, so like, do, do you have a particular philosophy about like you've got a trained clinical skill set, but in terms of for you and like your development and where you wanted to go, have you had like your own drive about that? Um, <clears throat> yeah, I, I guess so. I, I think it's just changed. So I mean, look, I. I graduated 27 years ago and I did a four year degree. So it's 31 years in the in the profession, if you look at it all in. Um, and I think it's evolved over time. So, you know, at one point I just wanted to understand why and how and really understand the background behind problems and injuries and how to help people. I think there are other motivators as to why I went into physiotherapy at some point um, we can discuss. But um, and then it kind of evolved into, you know, wanting to develop and um, sort of business interests and develop um, a better service for patients. And so like when you look at services and you look at things that are out there, you start to come up with your own philosophies around how you want to do things. Um, and then also it's leadership sort of um, aspects, opportunities have come across my way. And then that's evolved my philosophy in a different lens. Um, but I probably get more of a kick as an overarching in how I develop people. So whether that's from my own knowledge, whether that's from the teaching, whether that's through the, the clinic and the business, whether that's from leadership within Olympic teams or with particular athletes or particular teams in, in, in question. Um, I think that's how it's, it's kind of all evolved over periods of time. And so that's kept me stimulated it's kept me motivated it's kept the drivers going but it's constantly changing and now I, I probably juggle a, a combination of all of all three really from technical to leadership to people development um or four really and then a bit of business development as well yeah no I think it's really interesting and is that is that something which have you always had an interest in like relationships and, and building things? Was that developed with your maturity and experience? Um, yeah, a great question. 
it's I, I don't know is the simple answer. I think if I look back, probably because even if I go back to school times, I was always um sort of singled out or picked to be uh, a leader. So, you know, captain of sports teams, that sort of element. So I think you you find which like obviously when you're captain of sports teams, you've got a technical skill there, which normally elevates you to a certain level because you lead by example. But also I think some teachers will look at you and see potential. So if I look back at that, that was probably always there, but it was never really a focus of mine, I would say. Um, and then I think the last 10 years or so, it's become more of a focus because I think you understand that with your skill set, I can influence X amount of patients or athletes or um, practitioners by direct contact with me, whether I'm teaching or or whatever. And I think, you know, we've if we go back to the hip and groin stuff, that's we've educated. We did the mass on it the other day. We think we've educated over 4000 physios. Um, just on hip and groin injuries over the, the nearly 20 years that it's been running. Um, but I think as you start to understand that, you understand that if I can influence people and develop them and get them better and help them in their career, then that's going to influence more patients, that's going to influence more athletes, that's going to have a knock-on effect. And so I think your your mindset evolves over that time period um, and it comes more to the forte of of um, also the forefront of what you're thinking. And so then you start to, to shift that analysis. So I think it was always there. I don't think it was a focus for a long period of time. It's just come more into, into light over recent years. Mm, yeah, no, no, I'm sure we'll go into that a bit later on as well. So for when you were starting out then, so where, where are you from originally? Uh, <laughs> um, I laugh because it's a, it's an interesting, so my, so I was, I was I grew up in London slash Surrey, so um, in and around the Epsom area, went to and Wimbledon area, went to school down that way. But my mum's originally from the Caribbean, um, and so I have a dual heritage. So I have a Caribbean uh, history, and then my dad's English, and so I grew up between the Caribbean and London. And then my dad's family are, um, are have a, a Catalan. Um, ancestry as well so my his sister married a, a Catalan and so we've got a strong Spanish connection as well so I've grew, so I was very very lucky that I grew up um, around different countries and different cultures and different ways of of doing things but in essence my 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 background is is British really right yeah and then so at what point then did did you start formulating that you thought that physio might be some way which you wanted to go into yeah, it's interesting. Um, so like I was a, a good and I think you see this a lot with a lot of sports physios. I was a good sportsman, um, had aspirations to be better, probably. Um, I think if I look back on it now, I was probably never really going to be good enough. But I played at a pretty high level, um, was on the books of a professional rugby team and ran a lot of track and field. But unfortunately, had like my first major knee injury at 13. So I locked my knee out at like 120 degrees knee flexion, um, got taken to hospital, couldn't straighten it, saw, I think, five different doctors at the hospital who tried to straighten my knee. They couldn't do it. It was still stuck at around 90 by that point in time. And it was over about a four or five hour period. And then two physios came along. 
they put me on this machine, which I then since learned was a CPM, so continuous passive motion that unlocked the knee. Um, felt fine, no issues at all. Could run, skip, hop, jump, squat, duck, walk, you know, all of those sort of things you would naturally think wasn't an issue. Um, but in those days, I saw two surgeons on the ward afterwards and they said, right, well, you know, we're going to operate, um, which you look back at it now and you think, eh, it's probably an immature meniscus. It was probably a lack of development in the knee and we probably shouldn't have done that, but they did. And I had a scope for a posterior lateral meniscectomy on my right knee, um, <clears throat> which went well, came back, did everything. And then by 16, 17, 18, can't remember exactly, but ended up having more knee issues um, and ended up having an open meniscectomy. Um, cut, to cut a long story short, which again was a, a not a great move. And for various different reasons, it wasn't particularly managed well in the first 48 hours. Um, and then I saw this brilliant physio down locally to me who helped me out. And I'd been playing um, rugby uh, sort of semi-pro in those days because this was before it all really went pro um, down in the area. My two rugby physios were um, two of the most senior physios from the MOD because where I grew up in, in Epsom and Leatherhead is where the old Headley Court for um, the for the rehabilitation for the DMRC, so the Defence Medical Rehabilitation Centre was based. And there was a guy there who's called Flight Lieutenant Ron Bain, who's since passed, and another guy called Bobby Hughes, who's over, I think, now in South Wales. And they were just unbelievable inspirations for me as a physio to, to learn from them. And they were they were truly, truly world class in what they did. And that kind of just stimulated me to to go into it. So I think the injury... I, th I went to a school that was um, was originally called the Royal Benevolent Fund for Doctors Children. So we as a school, we had like 150 pupils per year. And I think about 50, 30 to 50 percent of them went to med school to study medicine. And I think I was the first person at that school to turn around and say, I want to do physiotherapy. And all the, the teachers kind of looked at me and said, why don't you want to do medicine? What's wrong with you kind of scenario? And. And I think so I think the medical background there, I think the injury and then I think the um, the stimulus and the support from those guys within my local areas kind of led for that in that formative years from like 13 to 18 to sort of develop around down that route and go down the physiotherapy route. Brian, have you ever had any any regrets around not going into medicine? Um. No, because I'm not a person that believes in regrets. It's not something I really do. I look back and I reflect, but I think you always make decisions for the right reasons with the best information at that time. And I would turn around and say every decision I've ever really made to shift the career or move or change job roles, whatever, I've always ended up with something bigger and better afterwards. So I'm not afraid or worried or look back at anything from a regret point of view there was certainly a period in time um after i graduated where i contemplated going back to med school to to restudy as a doctor but not from a regret point of view more just from a a desire to learn and understand more and recognize that what physio taught us was great but there's still so much more and it was more that desire but at the time i don't think the opportunities were really there and um and interestingly, it was a real 
pivotal point because that's when I made the decision to go to Australia and do um, my master's or my first master's down there. And um, I think that made a massive difference in terms of um, where my career then went from from that point on. Right. So, so at university then, what was your experience like at university when you were doing your undergrad? Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, interesting. I laugh because I probably was one of the worst students ever. Um, like I was I was still playing rugby. I was interested in rugby. I remember my third year, I think I broke my nose twice and I ripped 10 stitches underneath. I ripped a big scar underneath my eyelid and nearly lost my eyelid um, and had 10 stitches into it. And so I used to turn up at physio school with broken noses and um, sutures under my eyelids. And so I think my tutors turned around and said, look, you know, you need to make a choice. So let's just say um, my attendance probably wasn't the best. My application probably wasn't the best. Um, and I pretty much just about scraped through at undergrad in terms of what I'm doing. And that was more purely just on on focus. I don't think I started to focus until my final year. Um, and even then, probably not much um, from that point of view. So, look, I mean, I think I had a great time. I, I was in London. I was in King's. I think King's was really difficult at that time um, because we had campuses all over the all over London. So we would I remember we'd have like biochemistry in Kensington, uh, biochemistry in King's Road. And then we'd have physio studies in Kensington. But anatomy would be over at the Strand and then other stuff would be down at Denmark Hill. So you spent your whole time traveling across London, even during your lunch break, etc. So it was it was difficult. And London is an expensive city. And if you're a student in London, um, it's tough from that point of view. So I think, you know, it was definitely a struggle. And I don't think I necessarily had the right focus at the time. But um, yeah, hopefully I've made up for that. <laughs> uh, any of the tutors that are listening will probably look back and go, yeah, it wasn't the best. But there you go. And what, like, in terms of the placement you, you went on then, how come it was a four-year course? So in those days, you, I mean, like, it sounds so, this is 1992 when I started, right? So in those days, um, you you um, you could choose to do a three-year or four-year degree, and King's offered a four-year degree, because at the time when you started, the King's physiotherapy programme was underneath the medical and dental school. So you normally you've got KCL as in King's College London and then you've got King's you've got guys King's and Tommy's now as it is, which is the medical school sort of affiliate to KCL. Um, and so we were under the medical school remit. So it was a four year degree with a um, more practical, more research based in the fourth year. All the academia went through in the first three, really. And then I think you did about four to six months of placements in the final year with a big research project so it's kind of gearing you up to be maybe a little bit more academic but having that clinical and academic sort of wing um whereas other degrees were more university rather than med school orientated degrees if we want to look at it that way and then since it's evolved and king's has moved to the the physiotherapy school while we were training moved to underneath kcl and so it became more of a mainstream degree and therefore it became more of a three-year degree to fit in with their sort of standard degrees from that perspective not standard degrees but um to conform with uh, the rest of the other degrees shall we say from that point of view so yes yeah, so that's that that's the reason so purely by by luck um and i just like kings i'd got into other places and so you know that's why i ended up going 
Right. And then in placement wise, what, what was your experiences with that? I don't know. I can't remember. Um, I think like everybody else, uh, you know, the ones, there were some really good ones. Um, and then there were some not very good ones. Uh, and then there wasn't really a huge amount in between. So it was quite polarized um, in terms of what you what you experienced. And I, I certainly had like I had some really good um, pediatric experiences, really good neurology, really good MSK. But I also had some horrific MSK stuff as well. So, yeah, very, very, very mixed, very varied in terms of that exposure. In terms of that horrific, then, is that to do with the, the treatments or the people or the setup or what? Um, yeah, no, I don't think it's the setup. I don't and, and I don't necessarily know it's the people. I think it's with all of those sort of things. It's an understanding of communication, communication style and expectations. And I think when you go full circle and then you start to lead, you start to understand that you've got to set expectations, you've got to set boundaries for people, you've got to be clear on how you want communication and what you want as a work ethic and what you want as an expectation. And look, I wasn't the best student, so, um, but if it was all down to me as the common denominator, then all of them would have been bad, but not all of them were bad. So, you know, there was, and like I said, it was very polarized. So I think it would go back to the fact that it's it comes down to that communication set up with whoever's leading developing you managing you um and i think it's a specific skill right that if you're in an education academic environment you're there to teach and you're there to study and to research and to learn if you're in a clinical environment you might be there to treat and so the teaching might be in addition and finding shifting your mindset around how to manage that is um not always an easy thing to do right so you've got to you got to be able to shift your mindset from even I do that now when I'm working clinically versus when I'm working to, to develop somebody. It's tricky to just constantly shift your mindset around that in terms of how you how you go. So I would say that if I think back to it, that's probably where it all broke down um, on those not so good ones. And then so so when you actually graduated and you, you were going out and working, what, where was your first role? Um, I was very lucky, actually. I, I ended up going. I, I completed a couple of placements at Mayday Hospital in in Croydon, which um, didn't have the best reputation, shall we say. But their physio department, when I went there, was phenomenal. They had two or three really, really good MSK, MACP, so specialist manual therapy um, practitioners and acupuncturists. And they were very, very good. And this was the time where um, there weren't English Institutes of Sport. There weren't organisations out there. Everything you did was NHS with some part time sport in terms of where you went. And so you were looking for people to develop you. And certainly St George's had one of the best reputations for developing a lot of Olympic physios. But Mayda had some really technically very good practitioners that weren't really in sport, were much more in um, manual therapy but that kind of appealed to me and I liked the environment I liked the people it was relaxed it was chilled out um, and because I'd been there and I'd had good experiences there um, you know I was very lucky I got the opportunity but I mean I didn't I didn't stay there very long I was there for about 13 months um, I did 
a couple of months of vascular surgery, which I thought was really was fascinating because it taught you a lot about tissue healing, wound healing, and you know, teaching somebody to walk again after an amputation is um, a really good challenge and teaches you a lot about mechanics. Um, and then, like I went from that to neurology, which was a big passion of mine um, when I first started. Like one of my big passions when I first started in physio was neurology within pediatrics which sounds really weird for me to say that now doing having done what I've done but that was um, a big motivator to go into physio um, from placements I'd done when I was at school it's something that really stimulated me and working in neurology and teaching stroke patients how to walk again or head injuries how to walk again was really rewarding and really challenging and if you look to that from the mechanics in it's fascinating to look back retrospectively the mechanics and amputees to and vascular surgery to then going into neurology and then I did about nine months worth of placement um, and I ended up working so nine months worth of placement within musculoskeletal and I ended up working with two amazing physios one of which I can't remember her name right now but both female physios the other one was a girl called Vicky Southwood right now who's now possibly Vicky Smith um, who really so she married a physio who I ended up working with later on in our career a guy called Toby Smith who's still at the English Institute of Sport um, and she was hugely influential within the first part of my career and and how she do how she developed me um, within just challenging my knowledge and getting me to to really sort of develop my skill set Right. And then in terms of the view, so use, again, not wanting to be too complimentary to you, but everyone refers to you as being really academic, very smart, really, really on it in terms of your clinical application. Have you always had a really strong academic background? No. Um, no, not at all. Uh, like hard work. That's it. End of. Um yeah, look, I mean, I was, um, <laughs> I'm, I'm quite significantly, I call it Lex Dixic, uh, so I'm dyslexic, um, the, and I really, really struggled at school, um, so I went to a good school, I would have been a very good academic school, so it would have been top 50 in the country academically when I was there, um, but I would have been bottom set of everything uh, intellect wise. So we'd have had six academic sets per subject, whether it's maths, English, etc. And I would have been, I think the highest set I was in was set four for maths. And that would have been my strongest subject. And I was bottom set for science, etc. And I really struggled. And I struggled because I really, I couldn't spell. I couldn't read out loud. Um, so narrating from written text was really difficult for me. Um, I, um, yeah, and I really struggled to understand how school was working. Um, and then I, I basically, I got some special lessons when I was about 13 to try and help, 12, 13 to try and help. And then when I went to secondary school, I didn't really have any of that. Um, but I think something sort of clicked when I was about 16 and I kind of worked out a different way of thinking and a different way of working and a different way of learning for myself, which really came through trial and error and just probably more through frustration of just not being any good at it. Um, and in the end, I ended up getting like straight A's at A level. Um, 
or well, two A's and a B actually rather A level um, and the equivalent in those days. So which um, that you look back and you think, OK, well, there's got to be some intellect there to get that in the first place. But I wouldn't say I'm academic in any way, shape or form. I just excuse my language, but I just got pissed off with the fact that I wasn't any good at something. And I just really worked my work really hard at it. And then, you know, you go conversely. I didn't work very hard at my undergrad degree. And then I've gone off and done worked really hard at other stuff from that point of view. Um, so I think that was informative. I think like going to Australia and studying my master's at UQ, the big difference with UQ that I see compared to anywhere else was they didn't teach you necessarily academia. They were very, very good at it because at the time they had some of the best physios in the world working there, of which the most inspirational physio I've ever come across was a lady by the name of Professor Gwen Joel. Um, <clears throat> but what they did do was they taught you to think differently. And I think that ethos of being able to think differently has then shaped where I've ended up being from that, what people would now call an academic background, but um, I would just call it hard work and the right stimulus and the right people at the right time. So, yeah, how did that Australian thing come about? And then also, that, can you explain a bit more about that thinking differently and what that actually meant? Yeah, so a couple of things, really. Um, so after I finished, if I, if I fill in the gaps a little bit, after I finished that um, um, <clears throat> Mayday Hospital well I didn't finish like I was at Mayday Hospital and at the time in the CSP journal in frontline as it is now there were adverts for people to go and work in America and so I like did a couple of interviews over a telephone in those days you had like analog telephones right that you picked up and you, you had to ring the number to actually go through it so I had some interviews by telephone in um in America and I got a job over there um, and I went over there and worked for two years um, as a physio and I worked uh, inpatient. So I did COPD. I did a lot of neurology. I, I really kind of specialised in strokes and coma stim. So I did a lot of work around um, complex head injuries and, and coma patients. Um, and then I did some part time stuff within MSK and sports medicine and worked with some really good doctors over there. But there were. Um, two really good English physios one had a, a real background in pain science and one that was um, neurology and they were a couple husband wife they're now they were from Norwich originally and there were two Aussie physios the one was the head of the inpatient department in neurology and was a very specialist neurology physio and then the other one was an MSK physio um, and we all got on really well they stimulated me so the guys from England a guy called Ian really got me passionate about um pain science and autonoceptive processing and then I got into sports I got into musculoskeletal I wasn't really into sports medicine which is interesting and then we chatted and we developed and so I was just like like look after two years of being over there um the Aussie physio who's in MSK a guy called Michael Ridgway um was going off to do his master's at UQ and so I looked into it looked at UQ looked at Kurt and looked at a few other places I was like yeah why not let's do that so I went from America to Australia to study there and like best decision I've ever made in terms of of going and I think the I studied MANIPS so manual therapy and I didn't do sports and Michael did MANIPS as well and the reason being is at the time and this is a disservice and I'm paraphrasing hugely here at the time I think the sports physio was 
really really good and like you know the guy that ran the course there was or one of the guys that was heading up the course was Bill Vincenzino who's world class but you kind of got the impression that the sports physios were really really good at managing injuries and treating problems and what I really wanted to understand was well what's the science behind it and why as I mentioned at the beginning of this of this chat and so the manips kind of appealed to me that problem solving the the critical thinking the complex thinking I think as my brain was evolving over the time from the dyslexia into different ways of thinking and different challenging myself in that level that's where I wanted to go and so I went there with really with a passion to understanding um, pain science and spike complex spinal problems more than understanding sport um, and that's really what influenced it so I think you know when Gwen was there leading the program with Carolyn Richardson, Bill Vincenzino, you know Julie Hyde, Paul Hodges we were just so lucky with some of the world's best in the mid-90s when they're producing amazing research that were just stimulating you and they were you know they were like well we can teach you the information but if we teach you how to think properly and teach you how to problem solve and critically appraise then you're that's just going to have a knock-on effect and I think that then follows through within my desire to develop people and my kind of leadership sort of style on from there that that was really informative in the way in which they went about it I see the benefit of that and then that's knocked on from there yeah so was that like from a, like a coaching style and of trying to not give people the answers but trying to get out of them um yeah I think so but I think I don't I don't know that it was that like I don't want to do them a disservice because I, I, I it's tricky to reflect back because we're now talking that's 23 years ago right um I think I think they just what they did which really lends itself now is they set the environment right now whether that's coaching I don't know but I remember Gwen saying to us look you're going to learn on this course you're going to learn 30 percent of the information is going to be what we actually teach you right and the course was intense I mean I remember there were days where we started at eight o'clock in the morning we had lectures until like one we then went to clinical placement in the afternoon and it was really different because you'd the clinical placement wasn't done in blocks like you would normally do in the UK. It was done Monday, Wednesday, Friday afternoons for like four hours. So you would learn in the morning, go on clinical placement, come back, learn the next day, learn the next morning, go on clinical placement. So you were constantly evolving and challenging as you went, which is really different. So she would say 30% from the academia, 30% from coffee break conversations with the tutors. And then 30% from learning off your other classmates from their experience, et cetera. Obviously, that's 90%, but you follow my drift. Um, the, and I think they set the environment, the way the course was set, the environment and the evolution of that program just lent itself in the way in which it was structured to just influence the way in which you think, as opposed to like an active coaching style, shall we say. Um, and that really resonates with me around okay environment and exposure are like two of my key principles around how you develop people you've got to get the right environment you've got to expose them to different ways of thinking then you can and that will give them different experiences then you can develop them as a person and so we talk about it in terms of the three e's so experience exposure environment um, in terms of how we try and develop people in that lens and I think 
if I look back on it, a lot of that comes down to that that environment that they created. Mm. Yeah, in terms of getting onto this course, how competitive was it to get onto it? And then when you're there, like, what was the dynamic of the other people doing it? I don't know. It's a simple answer. I mean, look, I assume it was very, very competitive. Um, but you've also just got to recognise that um, <clears throat> certainly at that level, if you're an international student in those days, the international students paid three times the amount of the domestic students. So I think our course was about 15,000 Aussie for the for the year, whereas I think the domestic guys was about 5,000. So look, there's a commercial element to this. If you're gonna run a program like that, um, I would imagine that's going on in the background. And so there'll be a certain number of places that are allocated for domestic and certain number that are allocated for international. I mean, we were very mixed. I think we had like 26 students on the program. Um, I think half of us were international. You know, there was people from Hong Kong. There were at least three or four from Canada. There was two or four from Ireland. There was, um, I think there was only me from the UK, from England, should I say, yeah, well, Ireland had been separate to the UK. Um, the yeah, there was a number of different sort of people from all around the world and, and all over Australia. Guys came from Curtin, guys came from Adelaide, um, et cetera, and come up and, yeah, we had, yeah, a number of different people. Mm, and what have those guys gone on to do? Is, have you keep in touch with them? Yeah, I mean, so there was, there, was, there was four of us that got on really, really well and had a really tight-knit um, sort of team. Um, and and then Michael Ridgway, who I mentioned earlier, like he and I shared a flat throughout the whole time and we had a great experience. So Mike's gone on to be really successful in private practice and he's developed something called the Ridgway Method in, in Australia, which is a good sort of business, but also clinical acumen sort of treatment paradigm. So he's done really well. The, the other three guys that I got on that we had a really tight knit with have all been ridiculously successful. So Nico Berg, um, is based in Vancouver. He was a semi-pro, if not professional footballer, played for the Whitecaps and over there. But he worked with a guy called Alex McKegney and Rick Celebrini. So Rick ended up running the Olympics for Vancouver Olympics for Canada um, from a therapy medical point of view. Alex McKegney is, I don't know his title now, but he's head at um, Toronto Raptors, um, so basketball team. But he looked after the LA Lakers when Shaq and Kobe were there and looked after them and Nico was mentored by him. He's worked in the NBA, he's worked in professional sport. Nico was brilliant. He was one of the best, if not the best physio on the course. Um, and I, I still in contact with him. I owe a huge amount to him as a, as a friend and someone that developed me. And he would have been top with another guy called Sean O'Leary, who's gone on to do a huge amount of academia and research along with, um, a girl by the name of Rebecca Meller, who's also done a lot of research with Alison Grimaldi. But the other two guys who I was really close with was one was um, Ryan Kendrick, who's then who worked in sport for a long time, but he's then developed dynamic tape. So he, he did some research on taping when we were there and then he's gone on and developed dynamic tape. And then we've obviously worked quite closely together. I helped him with quite a bit of the biomechanics behind dynamic taping when he first launched it like 10, 15 years ago. And like we still chat on a regular basis and um, help him out. And then the other guy was a guy called Aidan Woods, who's an Irish physio 
in Dublin and Aidan ended up running, um, work, has worked in the Olympic program. He was a really good middle distance runner. Um, and he was for a long time, if he's not still, was the head physio for the Olympic program for, for Ireland. So, you know, you put Nico, Ryan, myself, Aidan all together as four guys who've all been really lucky to excel. But, you know, you think about in that formative period, how we would all learn off each other just is just huge. Right. You just can't set that. You can't script that in any way, shape or form. We're just very, very lucky to have been in the same place at the same time. And that is really interesting that they've all gone on and done done really well in, in whatever they're doing in sort of in different ways as well, slightly as well from like a business I know you, you're like you're you're into the business side of things as well, and it sounds like those guys are as well. Yeah, no, they've done really well. I think again, I come back to the course set the platform for us to do that, and it gave us the opportunity to explore um, and develop um, each other. And I think, and if I look at other areas where that's really excelled, like I'll jump on a little bit, but like when we worked in track and field. The other big formative area I would say for me was was that period of time when I was there for, I was there for nine years, but there was a big part of that like four to six year part overlapping where my boss was a guy called Matt Lancaster who's based now back down in Tasmania, who so he was like the manager for track and field for London for the English Institute of Sport, but he's probably one of the most cerebral lateral thinking physios I've ever come across and just inspirational with me in terms of um, stimulating and mentoring me but also developing me as a person as well as a clinician like was really good at managing me um, and my energy levels and how I go about things which was great and then on the contrast I had Mark Young who obviously has gone on to do great things you know research with Jill Cook on decline squat protocol for patellar tendinopathy you know, headed up ECB cricket for a number of years, then went to Geelong as rehab, then, you know, headed up Geelong. And then now I think he's done his MBA and is up at the Queensland Institute of Sport. But Mark was much more of a an academic. What does the research say? How do we apply it? Matt was much more of a lateral thinker. And I kind of sit in between the two. I probably had the strongest strength and conditioning background than they did. And I think the three of us together just really we all got on really well. Um, we just really, we, we had a very safe environment where you could have really robust challenge to each other. And that was received really well. You could debate things. You would um, work off each other in terms of different narratives and, and how you work and in that way. And so, you know, that, if I look at it, it's not, going back to one of your questions asked earlier, it's not the academia that's really stood me out it's those environments of whether that's with Nico Ryan and Aidan in Australia or with Mark and Matt in London and at the same time we have people like Alex Wolf as one of our SNC coaches Raf Brandon as our lead SNC coach Tommy Yule who's you know as one of our lead SNC coaches up in Birmingham and then a great guy I know called James Caragiorgio who's like a phenomenal SNC coach who who's now back in Australia. And so those guys were amazing as well. And you put that group of guys together um, working in that environment and like the evolution was just been phenomenal. It's just been really good. So I'm just very lucky again to have been, had that exposure to those people. Yeah, no, it's great. It's really interesting. It's like, yeah, I've not, I've not heard of all of those people, but the vast majority of them. 
Um, and then, so once you've been, you've done the, the course in Australia, where did you go on to there? Um, yeah, good. I, I came back to England and again, another guy who was really influential, a guy called Simon Shepherd. Um, so I met a guy called Alex Bragg in Australia and I'd worked for him a little bit doing, because I think I ran out of money um, on the course. Uh, and I did some locum work for him, went up to like um, upstate Queensland in Mackay and went over into the bush and worked there. And that was phenomenal. I loved it. It was great because just you could just have such an impact as a practitioner. And so Alex put me in contact with a guy called Simon Shepherd. And Simon is, again, he's a really interesting physio, really, really good technically, brilliant shoulder physio. He's I'm not sure if he's still doing it, but he basically ran um Middlesex cricket and Lords MCC sort of cricket for over 20 years I think he's still got an influence on it brilliant physio so I ended up working for him for a bit within Middlesex and he had his private practice in central London which was Simon Shepherd Limited or Shepherd Price because he had a partner at the time and then that's gone on to become Central Health I don't know if you're familiar with that but that's a very big practice in in London and Shep was Technically was very good, but he was, again, a really good man manager. I thought he was brilliant at the way in which he managed and developed me as an individual. Um, he, But he was also really interested in contractual sort of work and setting up good contracts. And that's where he went on and developed the central health sort of element where they partnered with the hospital of John, St. John's and St. Elizabeth and really developed a very good physiotherapy sort of um, clinic or set up and so worked with him for a bit um, for about 18 months or so and then I got the opportunity to sort of work down in Gloucestershire in, in Bristol with Gloucestershire Cricket with a mate of mine who was doing S&C down there and we'd been friends since we were 13 and he was like look we need a new physio do you want to come in so I came in sort of set that up and um, oh, I'm trying to remember his first name then we employed um, Steve Griffin who's now the ECB head physio, I think he is always one of the ECB physios, because um, I saw him run onto the ashes the other day, which is great to see him be successful as well. So he worked for us with Gloucestershire. I did that for about three years. And I was kind of trying to find my feet at the time because I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. So I was working for them. We had a clinic down in Bristol. I was lecturing for the MACP on um, a lumbar spine course that had been developed by the MACP at the time with some guys in London um, and in Wales actually. And I was also doing a little bit with um, APPI, so the Australian Physiotherapy and Pilates Institute, and we'd set up a, a clinic called Pilates Art in Hampstead. Um, so I was doing a little bit of this, a little bit of that, a bit of Pilates, a bit of spinal stuff, a bit of teaching, a bit of sport. I wasn't really quite sure where I wanted to go. Um, and then really fortunately, one of the girls on the course, one of the ladies, I should say, on the course, who was one of the tutors, one of the senior tutors at um, MSCP, and I can't remember her name, I can see her face, but I can't remember her name, but she was the superintendent physio over in um, Wales at one of the PCTs. And I gave her a lift one day and we were chatting as I gave her a lift and um, to the station and she sort of said, look, you know, I was interested in hip and groin, which actually got stimulated to me by Nico, who's really interested in hip and groin, Nico Berg from Vancouver, I mentioned earlier. And she sort of said, look, why don't you, no one's doing hip and groin, why don't you write a course on it? And I was like, all right. And she's like, so 
I'm going to send you an email on Monday and in six months time, I'm going to give you a date. You're going to come down to Wales and you're going to deliver a one day course on hip and groin for me. And I was like, OK, yeah, why not? Let's just do it. Right. Hadn't written anything, hadn't done anything, etc. And so she gave me this opportunity and I started writing it. And at the same time, about a month later, Mark Young came and started working at the private practice that I was working at in London which was a sports track and field practice that I'd eventually gone to, to work at. Um, and he and I got on well, and I sort of said, look, youngie, why don't you, like he was interested in teaching, why don't you just write this with me? And so we divvied it up, we wrote it, like we delivered the first course in um, 2003, I think it was like October or something like that. And um, yeah, the rest is kind of history. And then that's, that was the evolution to the sport in hip and groin. We delivered one day and we we're like, yeah, this is really good fun. We really like this. Let's move it to two days. And then we've got some more opportunities. And then, you know, we've kind of evolved it from there. So, yeah, that was that was critical um, in terms of that, that that sort of side of things. And that's kind of it's really just finding my way a bit interested in a few different things. And then, yeah, got this opportunity. So, yeah, took it and really enjoyed, really enjoyed the teaching side of it. Mm. And then, so what were you, what role did you go into once you were, were around that period? So at the time, um, I was working, I was still working part-time in Gloucestershire with Gloucestershire Cricket leading that programme. And Steve was working as the first team physio, but we would do the off-season work and then the in-season work and support and, and manage that. I was working for a girl called Sarah Connors, who now works for England Athletics, I think, but was a phenomenal what the one of the best hands-on practitioners I've ever come across in so she was in southeast London in like Catford area with her practice and did a lot with track and field um and she would have worked so she worked like early doors with Neil Black who's unfortunately passed now and then a, a really phenomenal academic physio called um Kevin Lidlow and the three of them were three amazing physios that work in the track and field and um so I ended up working with her and at the time you with within the Olympic sports, you kind of worked in private practice and did some part time stuff with the um, with the athletes. And you had like a voucher system. Um, and then and that would have been like 2003, 2004. Um, and then the English Institute of Sport was being was created around that time. And most of all the um, sports jobs then moved to the IS. So I had a choice of stay in private practice or apply for a role within the IS and Sarah had been mentoring this guy called um, Paul Martin, who was over in St Mary's as a physio, who's now, I think he still is like one of the lead physios for the Paralympic Association for the EIS, like phenomenal Paralympic physio. And Paul, I hopefully won't mind me saying this, was struggling a little bit with just, because he was just brilliant, but there was lots of politics around the setup at Mary's and Sarah had gone in there to support and mentor him. And then they'd wanted this full-time role to come in and she didn't want to do it. Um, and it probably wasn't really at her level. It was probably a level below where she was at. And so she said, look, do you want to apply for it? So I said, yeah, sure. Why not? And then I ended up becoming, that's when I became the clinical lead for the English Institute of Sport in London. Uh, so I mentored Paul and another girl called Sarah Black. And then Youngie then came on as one of our physios and then Matt Lancaster was like the manager for London and the Southeast. And so Matt led it. I was the clinical lead. And then we had these other physios. We had another guy called Daryl Martin, who has gone on to be really successful as well. So Daryl would have been 
within the BOA EIS setup, um, so British Olympic Association EIS, and then I think he went to ballet for a period of time, and then he went to Brentford for a long period of time, football, etc. So, you know, we had a really, really good team of people who've gone on to be successful. And I think, again, um, that led for us and my role was to develop like clinical excellence and standards and stuff like that. And so, you know, that was 2004, 2005, I think. And I, I stayed with the EIS for four years, but we were predominantly seconded to track and field. I'd worked in rowing. I'd done some other work roles. Um, and then like I stayed with track and field until 2012. Um, so within the Olympic program for for nine years, developing the teaching stuff on the side, I was consulting at Parkside Hospital in Wimbledon. So one of the knee surgeons there had asked me to come in and deal with like posterior lateral corner rotational instabilities at the knee, and we wrote like this hundred page document on how to manage those sort of problems. Um, and then we developed the hip and groin clinic there that I ran with Mark Witherspoon, who's another brilliant sports doctor who was at. ECB for years and at Southampton he's still at Southampton football and was head doctor now head of the academy and we ran a hip and groin clinic with this other radiologist called David Connell who was again phenomenal he's back in Oz and has been one of the most pivotal sports radiologist researchers in in modern times and so again just I keep saying it but just really lucky right people right time um in terms of that evolution um and yeah and on top of that I applied to be a tutor for kinetic control which is like was and probably still is one of the leading worldwide companies in motor patterning and motor control and so I lectured for them for from 2005 to, to 2012 um, on all their different systems so from upper limb to lower limb but I really specialized in lumbar spine and lower limb like I didn't do as much cervical and upper limb um, in in that aspect so yeah number of different things I, I have fingers in I, I like fingers in pies and lots of stimulus yeah and then so you, after uh, you know, four years at EIS what was next I think I met you when you were around that Saracens time and then um... yeah probably yeah so I mean look it's just political so you went to work for so we were originally track and field like part-time then you went to work for the EIS and when I went to work for the EIS I was like the contract was 70% track and field, 30% multi-sport. So rowing, wheelchair rugby, wheelchair, um, I can't remember what else I did, like, so a number of Paralympics sort of stuff. Um, but then the sort of system changed and we went 100% track and field. So we were then employed by UK Athletics as opposed to employed by the English Institute of Sport and seconded to UK Athletics. Um, and so I, you know, that was all the way through to, to 2012 but I think when we were going through that transition um, it was really interesting like a, a job role got advertised for England rugby and I thought why not I'll apply for it and I applied and I just didn't even get an interview um, and Steph Brennan applied and got the role and um, like again people that listen to this may or may not remember Steph but Steph was the one that was unfortunately um embroiled in, in when what's the right word I'm looking for um caught up in in bloodgate at harlequins if you remember back to that time uh and so unfortunately he didn't take the role um and so England rugby then applied uh re-advertised in 2009 
and I lectured on hip and groin mechanics and sport and speed development at St Mary's I think in the April and um, Roy Heddy was the head of science and medicine for England rugby at the time whose wife is Julie Heddy who's another phenomenal physio um, that's worked in private practice and worked in elite sport that I've worked with as well and he sort of said look you know why don't you interview and I kind of really bluntly sort of said well um, I applied last time and you didn't give me an interview so you know why would I necessarily apply again because they sort of called me up and said well you didn't apply you know what's going on and I was like well look I just didn't think I met your criteria and they said no 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 put your application and so I did got an interview and um, again really interesting it was um, well the call went so Mike Bundy was the head doctor at the time he was a big doctor at sports pure sports medicine and it was really Dan Lewenden and myself that were interviewing for the role or were down to the last two and look Dan had bucket loads of experience in rugby been the head physio at Northampton Saints I'd never worked in rugby even though it was my passion um and they kind of said look we're going to give it to Dan but when you interviewed again really lucky Martin Johnson was there interviewing he liked what you had to say and so we're going to kind of create this extra role and that was when it was Phil Pask um Barney Kenny who again both brilliant physios really influential in my career in terms of particularly Barney, such a great man manager and so supportive in people development. Um, again, been really inspirational. So Dan got the role and then I kind of came in part time. So I was working track and field for the Olympics 2012 um, and was part time for England rugby building into the World Cup in 2011. And again, we had Dan, you had Phil, you had Barney, we had myself and then you know, they also used to fly over Bill Knowles from Philadelphia or um, to come and do some work with some of our players. So, you know, I've got a picture of me and Bill standing at the side of the pitch in the in the warm up to this rather. Um, um, what's the word like 360 now when you think about the Rugby World Cup coming up in a, in a month or so to then reflect back on that. And again, brilliant people. So I was doing that. Um, and then, yeah, like in the February before. London 2012 I got um, asked to interview at Saracens they were looking at restructuring so went in interviewed got the role there and like I, I happily hold my hand up and say look it was it was the the right move the wrong time like I was exhausted after doing England rugby and after doing 2012 and I went straight into Saracens like literally straight off the back of the Olympics um, because the pre-season had already gone Saracens at the time had a problem with injury management and I was burnt out and then I was traveling up to St Albans every day and I live in South London and I was just exhausted and I didn't do a great job like we got the injury rate down we managed the players really well but I just didn't manage myself very well um, and therefore I didn't manage my team very well at the time and so that was the tricky part if that's when when we met and I was trying to you know find my way again and trying to find that change in my career and so I took a step back and chilled out for a few months um, and was really lucky again I interviewed for the BOA British Olympic Association to head up their intensive rehab unit over in Bisham um, got that role um, and yeah started to develop it there and again my boss at the time was a guy called Mark England who doesn't have an it doesn't have a um 
like a clinical background, but as a sports manager and someone that's developed sports systems, phenomenal, brilliant man manager. Like, and he and I just really clicked. I, he asked me to sort of evolve the IRU because it lost its kind of direction at the time due to the evolution off the back of 2012. And, um, you know, I was running at like 30% capacity. And so I did this review. I sort of said, look, I think it's going to take me six months to really review it. It'll take me three months to work out whether my processes is going to work. And then I'm going to deliver you this system. And I like wrote these reports for him, et cetera. We got on really well. I revamped the IRU. We went from 30% capacity to like 120% capacity. By Rio, I think we had like, we used to see about 85 athletes a year. I think 35 athletes that went to the Rio Olympic Games out of the 350. So 10, I think it was about 13% of all the athletes that went to Rio had been through the IRU and three of them had had career ending injuries that we um, got them back and they'd, they'd medaled um, at the Olympic Games. So one got two silvers, one got a gold and another one got a bronze that we were really influential on on them getting back. Um, and by doing that process, Mark and I, like our leadership um, style was similar and I learned a huge amount from him. And so then he asked me to be like, um, head of performance services for the Rio Olympic Games, and, he, and then he also made me a deputy chef de mission. So he was the chef de mission. So the chef leads the whole Olympics. So they take all the athletes, 350, they take the 100 odd science and medicine support staff, and then they take the rest of the delegation, which is another 300 plus. So it's about 700 to 1,000 people that go to the Rio, and the, the chef is in charge of everything from operations to communications, to media, to commercials, to performance, to athlete services. And then he has three deputies for that delegation. So a deputy for athletes, a deputy for sport. So the, the, the performance directors of sport and a deputy for performance. And I was, again, very lucky to be a deputy. So you had a remit to deliver performance, but you also had a remit to deliver um, leadership across the whole organization and direction across that and support mark within what he was doing um within leading that so yeah just okay i'll pause there because i've been rambling for a while no no that's really interesting so that that must be massive then for so for rio so and then so that that wasn't technically clinical for you then we, that was more of a managerial post um yeah i mean so without question the way I the way it was structured as the actual role. So the the job role I interviewed for was the the manager of the intensive rehab unit. What it evolved into, and it was interesting because the BOA, like if you go to 2012, the BOA had, I think something like six or seven practitioners within science and medicine who delivered about 13 days a week of delivery there or thereabouts when I did the the maths on it. And they basically, they all left or it was restructured for whatever reason at the time. And then they kind of employed me um, as this intensive rehab manager, but they didn't employ anyone to do any of the other stuff. And so it kind of fell on my plate and then it evolved. And I like to think because I was reasonably competent at it, it kind of evolved a little bit more. Um, but if you go back to 2012, I mean, they had, you know, Dave Redding was head of performance. They had Marco Cardinali, who's over at Aspatar now as head of science. 
they had Carol Becker as lead physio. They had um, like a number of different people. Ben Rosenblatt was there at the IRU. Um, yeah, Ashley Wallace was there at the IRU, um, et cetera. So there were a number of different people there that were really successful. Um, and so the role then evolved to them being this sort of IRU manager to then leading all the science medicine strategy to all the Olympic program. And people don't know this, but there are, for every four year cycle, there are 10 competitions. So there are two youth Olympic um, games, one winter, one summer. There are two European Youth Olympic festivals, one winter, one summer. There's a European Games. There's the Winter Olympic Games or the Olympic Winter Games. And then there's the then there's the Olympic Games. Right. And so um, like it's huge in terms of you, you have to build a team for every single competition and send that support team out there. So you're looking at clinical excellence, you're looking at standards, you're looking at where's it covered. So for example, if you look at Rio, we would have had like there was one area, Deodora, which had like rugby sevens, hockey, equestrian, shooting, BMX, canoe slalom. So everything about it was head injury, spinal injury, like major trauma orientated. So then we would look at right, well, who's taking what teams out there? who are rugby taking what, what taking and we had a guy called Jonathan Hansen who was part of our team who's a sports medicine doctor and an A&E consultant so a unique skill set he now heads up a lot of world rugby on pit side trauma um, and phenomenal pit side trauma specialist doctor and so then you're like right well like I've got to be able to analyze the clinical skill set who's up there who's the best person to support them well it was Jonathan and then you know, we put Ashley Wallace up there, Nikki Kumbara, who Nikki's gone on to be like head physio for the Olympics um, after that to then support Jonathan. So really good team. So you needed a clinical angle, but you needed to problem solve and work out who needed to go where you needed to be able to support, but also challenge some of the sports in terms of how they did their systems um, to try and make sure that it was there. You needed to understand what did they really need to do to operate and I think a lot about what we did was how do we create the right environment for those for those teams to excel and how do we reduce the noise was it? And so we did a lot of team building, you know, a big ethos behind where we went was, you know, what's the conversation do you want to have on the plane on the way home? Like every Olympic Games I'd been to beforehand, I'd heard people complain about this person or that person or this situation, that situation. And it just kind of when we were developing the team. And it was myself, Phil Glasgow, again, phenomenal practitioner, who now heads up Irish rugby, Laura Hanna, who headed up England hockey for a long time, um, and a lady by the name of Joe Hopkins, who's a psychologist, who helped us develop it. And we were like, look, what we want is we want everyone to be on the plane on the way home and just talk about the positive memories and the positive experiences they'd had and not complain. And we were phenomenally lucky that that, that really came to fruition in terms of what happened but I think by setting that environment which is again going back to full circle going back to the skills that I'd learned before it allowed um, and or enabled some of the other practitioners to just be really really good at their job and just focus on what they needed to do and do that and that kind of led you to realize that if I can do that well I can influence so many more practitioners and so many more patients and athletes than just by who I treat and who I work with by myself. Mm. 
I mean, I think that Rio, that was incredible because you're coming off the euphoria of London, which was like just an unbelievable two or three weeks for that period. But then Rio was even more successful, wasn't it, in terms of the actual medals? Um, what was that like to be involved in f from that side, from like the actual organisational infrastructure of it? I mean, yeah. I mean, look, yeah. I mean, Rio was um statistically it's the most successful modern day um british olympic team um the only team i think that was as successful as like the 1930s which wouldn't be regarded as the modern day olympic sort of program so you know to be involved in that and to be part of a leadership is just unbelievable in terms of like what you can achieve as part of your career so um phenomenal i think um that huge amount of that goes down to mark and his organizational skills and his vision as to where he went, so Mark England, who I mentioned earlier, um, like the, the the job to get everything ready is just huge. I mean, I think if I think back to some of the stats, I think we sent out 70, 40 foot containers to Rio as part of the Olympic program. I think our the science of medicine was like eight Olympic containers. Like we built, we took like this, um, it's kind of like a, a brick outhouse and we turned it into an Olympic gym, right? We, you know, I remember George North, who's out there, who was, you know, dating and now married Becky. Um, oh, I can't remember what her original surname was, um, who, who was one of the girls that got a double silver medalist. Um, like he came and trained at the facility because it was that good, right? So you got a professional rugby player that came and trained at this facility that we set up in a school that we just we flew in all the equipment. Alex Wolf, Chris McLeod, um, uh, Stuart Pickering were the three SSC coaches that developed that whole setup for us. Um, we designed it all. We sat down with the company, did it. Like there's just huge amount of stuff that went in. Like you go everything from hygiene. We were dealing with the Zika virus at the time. You know, we were dealing with. It's the first time an Olympic Games had ever been held in South America. Like, so there was a lot of unknowns in terms of what you were going into, like the organization and the operation was just phenomenal um, and just massive. And I don't think people realize that the planning for the Olympic Games starts from the BOA perspective, starts five years out. So I remember getting ready to go out to, to Rio in 2016 and we'd already started recce's for Tokyo in 2020. And we finished Rio in summer 2016. And by November, October and December, I'd already done two recce's to Tokyo to set Tokyo up. So, you know, you're, you're preparing four to five years out. That's how big a project it is. Um, and I had phenomenal support from people like Phil and Joe and Laura Hanna. But in terms of the BOA, like the whole remit was just mine. I had to look after everything from nutrition to psychology to strength and conditioning to medicine to physio to, to everything. So it really develop your skill set and your leadership skills. Mm, no, it's amazing. That's really good. I know we're conscious of time. How, how long have you got? You probably got I'm, over. I know we have. I know we have. Um, I'm good. I'm good. I've just yeah. messaged somebody. You saw me probably messaging. I just yeah. messaged somebody to say that I'm about 30 minutes late. So it's, if we got 30 more minutes, I'm I'm good. We'll Top try and make it. Brilliant. Yeah, yeah, no, that's great. It was really interesting, really interesting. So then, so from at what point did CHHP uh, happen? Ah, uh, yeah. So again, I think 
there's always been a passion of mine to work in private practice and to to learn from that because I recognized really early when I went to work for the English Institute of Sport that you, you your skill set can narrow you can de-skill a little bit and if you learn how you can push an athlete but also if you learn how you can push the general population in terms of trying to get them better and and how to structure programs I think that gives you a really nicely balanced continuum of how you do that so I've always been really strong the IS at the time had an ethos where you weren't allowed to to work in private practice and I basically wrote a business case about why I should have done um, to them and they let me do the consultancy at Partside and then we developed it and then we brought some of that knowledge into the IS and we took some of the knowledge back out of the IS into private practice and then as that kind of evolved um, again super lucky I'd worked with Professor Greg White within the Olympic program when he was at the BOA. He'd worked with this high altitude medicine doctor called Dr. Jack Kreindler. They'd done a lot of work around um, health longevity and health optimization. And they got this phenomenal story of, they worked with this guy called Chris Seary, who was diagnosed with terminal cancer and given about four months to live, something like that. And Greg and Jack had worked with him on his health and his fitness. And um, by getting fitter and by working through all the cancer medication he was on and all that kind of stuff and looking at his physiology, they extended his life expectancy of about two to three years. Um, and he eventually passed. But his wife, eventually, I remember going back to them and saying, look, you know, thank you. You gave my my husband another two, three years with me and with the kids. And we, in the end, named one of our rooms at CHHP after him. So one of the rooms, if you come to the clinic, is called um, the Siri Room in, in honour of the work that they did. And so they were doing that work. And then they spoke to Mike Lucemore, who's a professor of sports medicine, who was at English Institute of Sport, who then spoke to me and said, look, you know, we're trying to set this, this thing up in central London where we bring the Olympic programme and the Olympic thought process to the general population um, in terms of what we're trying to do are you interested? And I was like, yeah, sure, why not? Um, and at the time, I was kind of, you know, this would have been about 2010, 2011. I was thinking, well, what's my next step after athletics um, and after England rugby? Um, and yeah, we just kind of evolved it from there. So all, all of us came in, partnered, set it up. And then since it's evolved and Greg's left to go and do some other stuff, Jack's left, Mike and I still run it with a another partner called Liz. And we've we've rebranded and now it's called Marleybone Health. So it's been operational now, like unofficially for 12 years, but officially it would have been our 10 year anniversary in, in March this year, um, but in a different format from the Centre for Health and Performance, otherwise known as CHHP to now Marleybone Health Group. Um, so yeah, we've always had that in the background. And again, that's allowed me to, to develop people. We've got, I think something like 38 staff um, they're from physiologists, SNC coaches, Pilates instructors, physios, osteos, doctors, admin team, nutritionists. Um, so, yeah, we've got a number of really good people. So Ben Rosenblatt works with us now, who's the ex-lead like, um, for Southgate within England football. Mike Naylor does some stuff with us from the English Institute of Sport, bit of consultancy, etc. So, yeah, look, we've got phenomenal people there um, working with us as well as Prof. Lucemore, who leads the medical side of things.
Mm. No, it's a great spot, and I, I always really appreciate with you. We've done quite a few events from your place, which has just been yeah. it's been amazing. And you just there are quite a few people that I've had on here have worked in, in the centre as well. So right. uh, yeah, a lot of them are very complimentary about about you and the setup there. Um, and then in terms of like you've been working with with Andy Murray recently, and we bumped into each other on Centre Court a couple of years ago, which was great. Um, yeah. And so did you how did that relationship start uh yeah interesting <laughs> um so uh um shane Nunn is andy's main physio shane's awesome brilliant physio great guy one of the most lovely human beings you're ever going to meet um i got a huge amount of time and respect for him um so shane would have been on my hip and groin course probably like 2013 2014 something like that so i assume that was probably when andy was starting to have some hip issues he would have been working with andy with mark bender at the time then i think when andy ended up having the surgery you know in inverted commas retiring and then obviously coming back um they mark had left and shane was in charge and he and Andy's S&C coach, Matt Little, had basically travelled slash investigated around the world for people who would rehab somebody with a, um, a resurfacing, hip resurfacing, to find out how do you get an elite level guy back. And they, in essence, the comment they made to me was they just basically couldn't find somebody. Um, and then Shane basically called me up out of the blue, messaged me and said, look, you know, um, I don't know if this is going to work. I don't know what's happened, but could Andy come and have a consult with you? And this was about three months after he'd had the arthroplasty. So he'd had the surgery in January 2019, and this would have been April 2019. And we kind of did a consult for him, and Andy was just like deadpan, poker face, didn't give anything away. You didn't really develop any rapport with him. It was really, really tough consult. Like he was obviously probably still a level of frustration there. Um, now that I've got to know him really well in terms of what happened to him, you know, obviously a huge amount of doubt and or skepticism about, well, you know, can you help me, etc. And you know, you just had to open the door and say, look, I don't know because no one's ever done this before, but this is what I see. This is what I think we can do. This is really what I said to them. This is the system I would put in place. And we basically did a testing process and an evolution that I developed within track and field. I'd evolved it within the Olympic program for him. And if you look back at it over about a two year period, we have got like a, a 30, 40 page document on how we've assessed, managed and prescribed exercise for him to develop him and so I kind of sat in the background as a consultant for them for about six months to a year he then he came back he played that summer he obviously won in Antwerp won an ATP title with a metal hip he then had a bit of a problem the end of that year and Joe Larkin who's the sports medicine doctor at Fortius um, was managing it and she was the chief medical officer at LTA and they all came to see me and I sort of said look you know I think this, he had a bit of a, a bony issue. Joe had spoke to the MOD lead specialist within the bony issue. We thought we could manage it. Andy spoke to a couple of surgeons in America. 
who in New York who both said, look, we think you need surgery. Um, we were managing it. We were on the cusp of making a decision as to what should happen. And then COVID hit in March 2020. And Andy was basically um, confined to his house and couldn't fly to America to have surgery and couldn't do anything. And I wrote his rehab program for that six months without seeing him. And we got rid of this problem that they thought he was going to need surgery for. And the rest is kind of history. It then evolved. We then had more conversations. He's like, will you come on board a bit more full time to help manage this and do this, et cetera. And I was like, yeah, sure. Um, but I was really keen that Shane knew Andy better. And so we set a system up that I would kind of sit in the background, support Matt Little on a day to day basis from an S&C and how to manage this hip, support Shane whenever Shane needed a break, because the tour is really tough. You're on the road a lot, but recognize Shane's skill set that he was just this phenomenal physio that could work really well at um, slams at, um, at the majors, in essence. So, you know, put him in that position to do that. So I wouldn't ever do a major. I would do tournaments leading up to it to give Shane a break and then he could come into the majors fresh from that point of view. And so just try and coordinate the team really in the background for Andy. And that worked really well. And then like it was fascinating because in tennis, like it's a phenomenal sport. I would turn around to you and I'd say, I think the three hardest sports as an athlete to perfect are tennis, boxing and basketball, because I think they require the widest skill set. Right. In terms of agility, fitness, power, coordination, depth perception, but also individual psychology. And even though basketball is a team sport, it's really about your individual psychology is huge um, because there's not many places to hide because you're so exposed as an athlete. Um, and in tennis, it was used to say, well, look, he's moving well or he's not moving well. And I'm like, well, how do you define that? Like, what do you mean by all of that? And they couldn't really tell me. And so. Again, really lucky. I ended up bouncing back up. I stayed in contact with him with Raf Brandon, who's obviously a PhD in running mechanics and headed up research and innovation for the ECB. And he'd moved on from there. And we, like I remember, we went for a walk and talk around Holland Park and just had a coffee and just walked around the park and just chatted and exchanged ideas. And I was like, look, I think there's a project here on Andy. We could develop stuff. So we went into his GPS data. We stripped it all out into like 10 hertz. We ran this little mini project on it and we realized that we could identify Excel decel mechanics within how Andy would move, that we could train him appropriate for match day. And we were able to get this exhibition match of him playing Rafa Nadal. We modeled everything off that because you're not allowed to wear any um, movement wearables in on the ATP tour. So they're not they can't wear anything like they sometimes they might hide like their whoop underneath the sweatband, but they're not allowed to do it and they get told off if they do. So but are now I know that the ATP are now trying to evolve that and bring that in. So you couldn't get any real time match data like you would do in football. So you were kind of guessing, well, this is what a five hour match against Novak would look like. Right. But we had this two set match against Rafa in the Middle East that we modeled everything off. And then we got the training data and we really found that. Andy wasn't training at the level that he was playing matches at. And so we evolved all of his training. We evolved his S&C to that. And then that's where he's gone on. And we work with this company called Breakaway Data that I'm involved in. That's over in L.A. that does a lot with a lot of um, Olympic athletes, a, a lot of professional athletes over in the U.S. and run by a guy called Steve Gira, who's amazing as well. 
as a sports scientist and strength and conditioning coach. And Raf heads it up over here with a guy called Ben Smith from Chelsea. And we've kind of evolved that system now that that's really led Andy to learn how to move well again at that top end level and recapture that sort of capacity where he's now, you know, back at top 40 in the world. So, you know, I did that project for a time and that was amazing. Learned a lot, really good experience, great team that worked around him. Um, but at the same time, I then like about two years ago, I got asked to interview for the Brooklyn Nets for a role that was coming up there. I interviewed, they then didn't, um, they didn't uh, recruit in the end. And then a year later, they came back and said, look, we're looking at restructuring. Are you interested in doing a bit of part-time consultancy? I was like, yeah, sure, why not? Let's see what happens. You know, let's structure a deal where I fly into New York for two weeks, fly back to the UK for two weeks, back to New York, back to UK. And so we structured a deal for me to do that. I've worked for them for the last year and then now. And so by doing that, like my time was just too tight. So I stepped back from Andy, couldn't do that anymore. Um, he's in a really good place. You trust the team there. They're, they're going to look after him towards what he needs to do. And so now, yeah, um, uh, I'm working largely for the Brooklyn Nets as well as sort of, you know, just got developing, keeping as a silent partner now with Marlebone Health and with the education company, the Health Development Performance Network. Sort of still developing some education, but more as a sort of a um, advisory board kind of member, as opposed to directly hands on it, because the the basketball is going to take up a lot of time. So yeah, looking at being based in New York a little bit more in the future, and and working with them and seeing if you know they've got phenomenal GM and Sean Marks, who's won championships with the San Antonio Spurs, and uh, seeing if we can um, capture a championship in the NBA, which would be phenomenal if I could do that. I think that would be my last final challenge from you know track and field well cricket to track and field through the olympics to england rugby world cup to you know rio olympic games to andy murray to then basketball yeah that's pretty decent it's not bad that's unbelievable no that's great no well congratulations on that role and uh, yeah that, that'll be really good and then so last question we've got into a lot of different things here like what would your advice be for for people wanting to get into this space from, from, from like a non-clinical perspective, what, what do you think are the core skills or advice that you would give people? Um, I think it's got to be two things, right? So I've done a fair bit of mentoring over the last couple of years for other practitioners. And there's one physio recently that I've mentored her and an SNC coach that have gone on, like the SNC coach is now up at Man City from the LTA, the, um, the physio went from Harlequins women's team to then Cardiff to now England women's rugby. Like she's done really, really well. And my, my, my question to all of them is at the beginning, what are you really passionate about? And what a lot of people come back to me or I like, ask them, why do you want to be mentored? Like what's the driver around this? And they always come back to me and they come back to me normally with some kind of quantitative outcome. So I want to be this. I want to have a leadership role. I want to be, I want to have a seat at the table where I can make performance decisions to influence athletes. And my angle with all of them is, okay, that's great. That's an outcome. But how do you know that that's going to fulfill you? Because that's a title. 
and I've seen an absolute bucket load of practitioners from across science and medicine and, and, and areas that have gone, I want this title, I want to be in the leadership, I want to be seen as X. And then they get there and it's not really what they wanted, right? Um, and so I always come back to, well, well, what do you love about the profession? What are you passionate about? What really makes you tick? Okay. And then like, and if I go back to this female physio called Olivia, who's phenomenal as well, like she'll come back and say, well, actually, I really want to have an impact on the athlete and make a difference. Okay, well then let's, therefore we need to develop you technically, or I want to develop people and I want to do that. Okay, well, let's look at how, what your, your non-technical communication skills are like, and let's do it that way. So I think the key for me really is, um, if you were to put it into a nutshell, it's what are you passionate about and what really gives you a buzz? And I think if you can harness that, your motivation and your drive is always going to be there. And if your motivation, and your drive is going to be there, a people will see it and they'll they'll resonate. It'll resonate with them. They'll be attracted to you, professionally. That is, um, in terms of way they're going to go in terms of development. And you'll you'll be like a magnet and you'll draw people towards you. And that will 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 spur your career on. But it will also motivate you because you're you know if you want to go Simon Sinek, your why is clearly well defined in terms of why you're doing what you're doing as opposed to you know what I'm trying to achieve as opposed to why I'm trying to achieve it if you want to go down that route and then I think the other part is which is really difficult as a junior practitioner you've got to know yourself and you've got to know what your strengths what your weaknesses are what makes you tick you know where where are your blind spots where are your super strengths where are your you know when if your super strength is overplayed like my I would say one of my super strengths is my clarity and my critical thinking but if I go too much into that, it can come across as being critical and um, like I'm criticizing somebody as opposed to I'm um, trying to clarify. So you will quite often hear me say, I, I just need to clarify this as opposed to because otherwise, if I ask a question, people might think, well, you're criticizing me as opposed to something else. But that's evolved by understanding who I am and what makes me tick. So I think that's key. And I see a lot of younger practitioners that tell me oh, I want to have leadership role I want to develop my leadership skills but they don't really know who they are and they haven't really developed what they're about as a practitioner yet and so I've, I think you can I don't think it's impossible but I think it's a lot harder because I think you're going to develop something based on where you are right now and then that's going to evolve and that's going to change and if we go full circle back to the beginning of this talk you know the whole of my career has just constantly evolved and changed and gone down different routes and you've got to be able to move with it and adapt with that and I think again I go back to the environment the exposure the experience all those sort of things come back to allow yourself to adapt to that sort of that sort of process so yeah just to finalize it's understand what makes you tick and be have the right stimulus know your why what motivates you and then know yourself right um, and if you know yourself then you can develop your leadership style you can develop your communication style your interaction with different people in many different ways brilliant now look i think that's a great way to end really enjoyed that whole talk and i know we touched on not just some of the, the clinical things um so yeah no really, really appreciate it appreciate your time and it's, it's taken me a while but it's been worth it and um hopefully we'll catch up maybe even in new york next time why not have to come out see us come to a game um or yeah let's do an, we can always do another one we can do one that's technical if you want or whatever works for you top man appreciate it thanks james have a good one Cheers. bye bye